0: a series uh, for the past few weeks. This is week number six. And I thought the whole series was only going to take us seven weeks, and we're only at chapter six out of 28. And so, as a result, I I just decided listen, we're going to deal with the passages as tightly and as on a small basis as we need to. And hopefully, you've experienced the benefits of that uh, with me over the last couple weeks. It's been an encouragement to me to walk through this a little bit more slowly than I usually do. But um, as we've been covering this ground, we've been tracking along with Matthew to find out who our King Jesus really is. What is it really about Jesus that we need to know? What is it really about Jesus that makes him our King and how he is a King that is different from every other King? Here's just a little bit of review, some things that we've learned along the way. First of all, we've learned that Jesus is the great king of all kings. We learned from the very opening chapter that even though King David was the great king in Israel, Jesus is better than David. Jesus was above David. Jesus is three times better than David, according to the way Matthew words it. We also know that Jesus is kind of like the new Moses but we'll get to that in just a little bit. So first, we learn that he is the king above all kings. Secondly, we learned he's the king, but he's involved in glory and in suffering. That he's not just a king who does glory, he's a king who also suffers. Jesus is the king of victory through selflessness. He doesn't toot his own horn. In fact, he's constantly putting other people up and not necessarily lifting himself up. Jesus Expands the borders of blessing in the world. Where we like to, traw, wh- where we like to draw uh, boundary lines around where God can work and who He will bless, Jesus is trying to expand those borders. We also learn that Jesus has called followers to be blessings to the world, to be humble blessings. To the world. Not to take control of the world, but to humbly bless it. And we learn that Jesus' citizens are never satisfied with partial righteousness. But even though that gives us a picture of who the king is, I want to step back just a little bit and remind you of the, the narrative structure of the book of Matthew so far. See, at the very beginning of Matthew, we're told that Jesus is this unordinary child. And He then is taken down into Egypt, and then he comes out of Egypt. And Matthew makes a specific point of saying that Jesus came out of Egypt as a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus himself would say, last week we heard, that he is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. But that idea of Jesus coming out of Egypt is really interesting, because then after he comes out of Egypt, the next thing that happens in the story is that Jesus goes into the wilderness. And he spends some time in the wilderness where he is tested. And then he comes out of the wilderness and he makes his way to a mountain. And on the mountain he begins to teach people and he gives them a list very at the beginning of the whole thing. He gives them a list and it sounds a lot like Moses. It sounds a lot like Moses, who brought the people out of Egypt and led them through the desert so they would come to the mountain, and the first thing at the mountain, God gave them a list we call the Ten Commandments. But Jesus' list is not a list of commands. Jesus' list is a list of identity attitudes, kind of who you are as a person. Jesus is beginning to build a culture for his people, not just a list of do's and don'ts. But the next thing that happens after the main list, the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, is that Moses then spends a lot of time with God, and he gets detailed commands from God. A whole long list of the things that the new nation of Israel needs to do to be this God-honoring nation. And Jesus did the same thing. Last week we saw Jesus begin to reinterpret the law. What does it mean to be a real follower of God's law? But the parallel continues. Because see, if the parallel between the Old Testament and Jesus continues, then we should expect the next thing that Jesus talks about to be religion. You see, in the Old Testament, after Moses went to the mountain, he got the identity commandments, the Ten Commandments. Then he got the cultural commandments. And then by the time you make it to Leviticus, all of the commands in Leviticus are religious structure in nature. The Leviticus commands are how do you do sacrifices? What does the priest wear? What, what does the temple need to look like? Stuff like that. Religious commands. Well, if Jesus is going to be the new Moses, then he needs to step into that too. So you'll find out with me today that he does. But it's helpful for us to just ask this question before we dig into what Jesus says. When you think of religion, what thoughts come to your mind? I asked you the question today about spiritual disciplines and religious practices because I know for a lot of us, the thing that comes into our minds when we think about religion is we think about rituals, we think about ceremonies, but we also think about clothing, The kinds of clothing that you can wear. The kinds of music that you can uh, listen to or participate in. The kinds of buildings that you're going to gather in. We think about all these other things when it comes to religion as well. In some religious contexts, you might think of the kinds of food you're supposed to eat and stuff like that. Or, Or maybe when you think of religion, you think of a hierarchy of people. You know, there's some people who are at the top and then there's some people at the bottom. What do you think of when you think of religion? Moses built at the mountain under the guidance of God a religious system that included all of those things. And so the Old Testament has all of these things. The hierarchy, the clothing, the food, the rituals. And you know what Christians do? Even though we're New Testament types of people, we do the same things. We still to this day Think through religion in terms of the outside experiences, the behaviors, the disciplines. And Jesus, when he begins to address what the new religion looks like in his kingdom, he starts with a phrase that should automatically give you the sense that he's doing something different. Look up at the screen or at the Bible passage if you have it, and I want to show you this. He says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. The first thing Jesus says, the very first verse in this section where Jesus is going to be establishing the new religious system for his kingdom, the first thing he says is, don't do your righteousness, your religious actions, in front of other people to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. This is why we do religion. There are only two reasons why people do religion. One, because they want God to like them. They do religion because they want to be in good with God. The second reason people do religion is because they want to be good with people. The higher you move in a religious system, the higher you are in the people system who've accepted that religious system. And so Christians or any other religious person, we're all in the same boat with this. We want God to like us more, and we want respect from the people around us. And so we practice our religion. And if you're in a context where practicing the religion doesn't earn you the respect of the people around you, then you'll drop that religion and do whatever other kind of faith worldview type system the people around you are willing to pay you respect for. And we do that. That is our problem. And Jesus begins this very first verse of this new religious code by saying, don't do it to be seen by others, because if you do, you'll have no reward from God. Jesus says it's an either-or. You either get human recognition or you get God recognition. So first of all, Jesus' form of religion is completely different from the way we tend to view religion. But keep reading because at the very end of the chapter, verse 33, the last verse in the chapter is 34, verse 33 says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. I think most likely the all these things is referring to the context immediately surrounding verse 33, which is a context about being cared for with food and clothing and shelter, that kind of stuff. I think it's primarily that, but it's possible that all these things could be referring to all the things we want out of religion. We want respect from other people and we want respect from God, and Jesus says there's only one way for you to get it, and it's to not want it. If you want God to be happy with you, you want the wrong thing. If you want the world to respect you, you want the wrong thing. The only way to get these things that you want is to not want them. Instead, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. You put your passion on something that has nothing to do with the religion itself. Because see, Jesus is going to introduce something completely new to us. And just to give you the punchline at the beginning of the joke, before we go through all of this, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think the religion of Jesus is. Jesus' religion we can define as this. Others over me because of my Father. Notice I didn't say because of God. Because in this chapter, Jesus doesn't say the word God. In this chapter, he says, Father. He says, Your Father. That's what he's talking about. And so the religion of Jesus is others over me because of my Father. Now, I could prove this with one verse out of the book of James, but I figured I would just walk you slowly through chapter 6 to show you in Jesus' own words how this shows up. And so let's dig into it. The first thing he talks about is a spiritual gift, a spiritual um, practice called almsgiving or giving to the needy or giving to the poor. It says this in Matthew 6 beginning at verse 2. He says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Again, he's making this contrast between getting a reward from human beings and getting a a reward from God. If you do this good deed, this spiritual religious thing, almsgiving, and you do it to be seen by others, that's all the reward you get. But, When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. You have a choice. Do I want to be a person of earthly rewards, or do I want to be a person of kingdom rewards? Do I want to be a person who does things for earthly recognition, or do I want to be a person who does things because of God? Now, It would be really easy for us to say that this is purely transactional. I'm going to do a good deed silently because I want a reward from God. And I know you might think that. I know it sounds like that. The reason to do the good thing is because of my father's rewards. But as we've already seen at the end of the chapter, Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He doesn't say, seek first his rewards. He doesn't say, seek first his respect. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, Jesus here is talking about rewards at the beginning of this section because he's trying to get people's attention. But since I already have your attention, I want to let you know it's not only about the rewards as we move through this. It's about the Father behind the rewards. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You know, I was raised in a church where people took this seriously. Almsgiving is something that uh, Christians and religious people have had a problem with for all of human history. Because you see, when I do something nice for another person, I really want other people to know it. When I do something nice for someone else, I really want them to brag me up to their friends about the thing that I did. And if they don't brag me up to their friends, then I need to find a way to somehow humble brag myself to my friends so that they can at least know the good thing that I have done. We do this all the time. How many buildings at Purdue are named for a person who gave money to Purdue? How many times do we exchange money giving for recognition? And so in this church that I grew up in, they practiced secret giving. Oh, and they went through all kinds of levels of secrecy. They had church envelopes that were printed up that had a number on them, no name. The number was associated with each family. So your family had a number in some system or some book or some, because we didn't have electronic databases when I was a kid growing up. And so your name was associated with a number in some book somewhere. And when you got that, you were supposed to fill that numbered envelope with some money or a check. The problem is when you opened it up and you would see the check, you could sometimes see the name on the check. And so the envelope was designed in such a way that you could see the dollar figures without seeing the name of the person. So one group of people would record the numbers and the numbers, And then somewhere long down the road, there was one individual and only one individual in the church who had access to associate the numbers with the names. But by the time it made it all the way down to that individual, (laughs) the checks were no longer in that thing. It was the record of the numbers and the numbers, and so it all, it, just the, the numbers of the, of the person and the donation. So when it got down to that person, that was just one person who was able to record this stuff. In other words, my dad didn't know who gave what. No leader knew anything about who gave what. It was total secrecy in the church. And by the way, that's the way most churches that I'm aware of operate in some sort of sense like that. When I first became a pastor, I was in a church that did that same basic practice. And I remember one day I was talking about money from the stage. I gave a message where I talked about tithing. And before that message talking about tithing, I had been in a business meeting with the leaders of the church when I had spoken freely about how we were spending our money and the church finances. And before I even became a pastor of that church, I remember they had given me a salary offer, and I had done some calculations, and I told them that I didn't think that would be enough to take care of my family in that part of Chicago. And so I wrote them back with a moderate counter offer, which is basically what I thought you were supposed to do. Um, So I did, and then they came back to me with a restructured plan, and they were like, how about this? And I was like, okay, that sounds great, let's do it. And so we went along with that restructured plan all this stuff. Anyway, there was a guy in the church who got so upset on the Sunday I spoke about tithing that he grabbed me afterwards along with the treasurer of the church and he took me into my office and we all sat down and spent about an hour and a half while this guy just continued to tell me off about who did I think I was, the pastor of the church, being so involved with the finances of the church. Just completely outraged. And the treasurer in the church was just sitting there the whole time, silently, listening. He later told me that he was impressed with how how silent I stayed in the meeting as well. But anyway, it was one of my early, early successes in trying to be a good person. But uh, I've had many failures since then. The bottom line is, this guy was yelling at me. A couple years later, I don't remember exactly how it came out, but way after he had left the church, the treasurer was no longer as involved as he had been before, and there was no one left to do it, and things were getting electronic, and so I started getting more involved in the money of the church, and as a part of the process, I discovered that that guy who had chewed me out had basically never given to the church, I mean, he had given like $5 here and $10 there, but he had certainly never been a regular faithful supporter of the church. Does secrecy help anything? Actually, no. Secrecy doesn't solve our problems. Secrecy doesn't solve the heart problem. Even to this day, I still get people who use financial gifts to the church as a kind of leverage Now it doesn't happen a lot, but every now and then someone will tell me that they're upset with something going on in the church and that they're no longer going to be supporting the church financially or that they've decided to stop supporting or to reduce their support or something along those lines. And it's only happened a couple times and I have no idea what their actual motives are. Maybe they're just trying to inform me of something that's going on, but it feels to me like they're trying to control, like they're trying to manipulate or they're trying to to convince me to change a decision that I've made because of their you of money giving to the church does secrecy solve our problems no secrecy doesn't solve any of our problems because the problem is already in the darkness of our hearts it's the motivation that's the problem That's why Jesus says, don't do your gifts in front of other people to be seen by them. Do it in such a way that your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I'm not going to do it because I want you to see me. I'm going to do what I do because God always sees me. I don't need to... I don't need to coerce God. I need to recognize He's already seeing me. He's already aware. I would put it this way. When it comes to giving, I need to be a person who gives to others because of my Father. My Father is always watching me. He's always looking over me. For both good, I mean, he cares for me, he loves me, but also it's a little bit scary because he knows the darkness in my heart. And if I give in public with a public attitude in my heart, then he's going to see that. And if I give in private with a public attitude in my heart, he's also going to see that. Secrecy isn't the thing, the motivation is the thing. Why do I give? Am I doing this so that I rank up compared to other human beings? Or am I doing this because I love my heavenly Father? Those are your motivations. Which is it? When you give, what is your motivation? Jesus would say, you need to give because of your Father. But then let's move on. Take a look at verse 5. It says this, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. This is the same formula. Here's a person who's doing a spiritual thing, and Jesus says these spiritual people are actually hypocrites because they're just doing it to be seen by other people, and they've received their reward in full. Now, Christians have a problem with prayer. We've got a problem with with, uh, money because we too often associate money with recognition. But we also have a problem with prayer because if you've ever been in a church environment for long enough, you will also see that prayer is deeply tied with recognition in a couple ways. You see, usually when someone is praying on the stage, they are trying their best to to say a prayer where the words all make sense. They are trying their best to speak a prayer that communicates what the whole group of people might be praying in their hearts. That is a difficult task to do. And it requires someone who has some measure of verbal skills. And the people who are not on the stage begin to think that that's what prayer is. Prayer is... A thing that requires verbal skills. Prayer is a thing that requires someone's eloquence. And the downside of that is that the people who are in the congregation and the person who's on the stage both can get this misunderstanding that prayer is about being better than other people. And if I'm a better prayer, then I'm the one who stands higher than the rest of the people. And so we all get this association of prayer and respect. That does so much damage to our souls. Have you ever met a person who says, I don't like praying out loud in front of people? Have you ever met a person like that? They're everywhere. They're probably inside you right now. Because almost everybody I know has the same basic approach to prayer. I don't want to pray in public because I don't feel like I should. And they think they are keeping this passage. I'm going to keep my prayers in secret. Because let's see what Jesus says next. He says, when you pray... Then go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father who's seen what is done in secret will reward you. And so we think of prayer as this secretive thing. I don't want to pray. It's a private thing for me. But the truth of the matter is, we don't want to pray in public because we're embarrassed. Or we're afraid of being embarrassed. We're afraid of saying the wrong thing because people are watching me. It's the same heart motivation. If you're praying to earn respect, or if you're praying because you're embarrassed, those are the same heart motivations. It's a motivation that says, I'm praying because of the people around me. Or I'm not praying because of the people around me. But Jesus says, no. Your prayers should be because of your heavenly Father who sees what is done in secret. Not just in your closet, but also in your heart. So, Jesus would say, Are you praying for the people? Or are you doing even the third thing? Sometimes we pray because we're trying to coerce God. Look what Jesus says next. He says, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You see, there was this idea in the pagan world that gods exist, but they don't care. And so if you want a god to pay attention to you, you have to do things that get that god's attention. You have to use the right words in the right way. You have to speak enough of them. You have to do other sorts of rituals so that you can get the gods to pay attention to you because then if the gods are paying attention to you, then you can actually pray and you might actually get something that you're praying for. But Jesus says, your father already sees what is in secret, therefore he already knows your heart, therefore he already knows your thoughts, therefore he already knows what you need. Your father is already paying attention to you. You don't need to get his attention, he's already paying attention to you. And so you don't need to use many, many words. Our problem is that we come to prayer sometimes thinking it's our job to convince God to act on our behalf. And Jesus is trying to say, no, no. Your Father is already ready to work on your behalf. And your Father already knows what working on your behalf means. And your Father already is ready to give you what you need. So you don't have to come to prayer to impress people. You don't have to come to prayer because you're embarrassed by people. You don't have to come to prayer to coerce God. You come to prayer how? Interestingly, that's exactly the next thing Jesus is going to say. But the first thing you got to get, the first thing i got to get, is the heart motivation. I pray not because I need something. I pray not because I'm trying to impress people. I pray not because I'm trying to convince God. I pray because of my Father. My Father already knows what I need. My Father already loves me. My Father already cares for me. So I'm just going to come to him and say, thanks for being a God who watches out for me. I know you've seen it, but there's this thing I'm struggling with. And you might say, well, if God already knows what I need, why bother praying at all? Well, Jesus addresses that next too. Because he takes a detour from his his string of don't do it in front of people, I tell you do it in secret because God is going to give you rewards in secret. He takes a detour from that to spend just a little time in prayer. This is the section in the Bible that we call the Lord's Prayer. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know this. Many of you have it memorized. Jesus actually, this is the passage. And you're like, well, wait a minute. This is interesting because it doesn't sound like Jesus is comparing the external motivations and the internal motivations. It sounds like he's doing a detour. But I want to draw your attention to something. What is the first word of Jesus' prayer that he teaches us to pray. How different would it sound if Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. My Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Quite honestly, in the context of these passages, my is the word that makes the most sense. Because Jesus is trying to teach these people of their individual spiritual behaviors, right? And whether their motivation is towards God or towards other people. And he says, You shouldn't have a motivation towards other people. You should have a motivation just towards God. You should pray in secret, it sounds like he's saying. You should give in secret, it sounds like he's saying. And so there's a part of us that seems to say this should be a private situation, but no, the first word of the prayer is the word our. It's not my father, it's our father. This prayer is supposed to reorient us. And now we're beginning to get a bigger picture. All of the religious disciplines that Jesus is going to talk about are disciplines that reorient you away from you and to a new understanding of the us and to a new understanding of our Father who already loves us. I pray because I am part of a family. I pray because I am part of a family with a God who loves me. But let's walk through the rest of it. He says, "...your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one." If you have a King James Version of your Bible, it will attack on an extra phrase, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. There are a number of reasons why that extra phrase shows up. It does not show up in the original, oldest copies of Matthew that we have. It only shows up later in history. And that's largely because this prayer is so incredibly short, someone needed to add something to it. And it's also because this prayer doesn't talk anything about God's glory. Someone needed to add that to it. And this prayer doesn't end with amen. Someone had to add that to it. And so I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to say. If you end your prayer with, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, fine. That's wonderful. I think every Christian on the planet can agree that that truly expresses what we should be expressing in this prayer also. There's only one problem. Jesus doesn't add it. Because the original, oldest copies of Matthew that we have don't have that little extra phrase. It doesn't show up in Luke either. And so here's the thing. We look at this passage, and we're like, that prayer is way too short. Well, he had just said, don't pray with babbling words thinking you're going to convince God of something. How much of this prayer sounds like our prayers? Our prayers tend to go like, Lord... Give us today our daily bread, and then we go off on a soliloquy of how we need it, and how much we need it, and oh my, how bad it is that we haven't had it, and we really, really need it, and we want it, but we really need it, and so we we go on and on about that. And Jesus is like, okay, hang on a second here. God knows you. He loves you. He's your Father. He's our Father. Your prayers should respect that. See, if I'm praying to get something over someone else, my motivation is wrong. If I'm praying to convince God to treat me in a particular way, my motivation is wrong. But if I'm praying with a recognition that He already is my Father, if I'm praying with a recognition that He is our Father, then there is both a He already loves me thing, and there's also a these other people are with me in the same family thing, I shouldn't be above them or below them, we are together. It's the our Father motivation that we need to have in our prayers. And you know how I know that to be the case and what Jesus is actually trying to teach us here? It's because of that weird phrase in the middle, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. When I think about religion, I think about praising and worshiping God because he's worthy. When I think about religion, I think about going through the the acts of religious systems. The prayers and the fasting and all the other things about the religious systems. When I think about religion, I think about doing the responsibility things. Like keeping a moral code and giving money and stuff like that. And I think about religion as the, I need God to take care of me. Give us today our daily bread. That makes sense to me. And I think about religion as being morally pure. And I look at the end, lead us not into into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I need God's strength to deliver me from Satan, from the evil in this world. But there's that weird thing in the middle where I ask God to forgive me because I've already forgiven someone else? Usually my prayers are, and God forgive me, period, end. That's all I need. And would you know that Jesus knows that's the verse you need the most. So he says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I'm kind of a grammar nerd. I think this is important. The entire prayer takes about four sentences. And that's because those sentences include one sentence that says, Give us our daily bread. Four sentences in the entire prayer. Jesus takes two sentences. Almost a full slide of text to tell us this. Forgiving other people on earth determines if God forgives you. That doesn't make sense to me. I mean, that's a difficult concept to grab. Jesus gives almost no explanation about the prayer, but he takes two extra sentences to expand this concept of forgiveness. Why in the world would he take so much time to do that? Well, I think it's because he wants us to forgive. The, The religion of Jesus is a religion that puts others above me for our Father, because of our Father. And if I'm putting others above me, that means I need to forgive them. See, I don't forgive them because they deserve it. I don't forgive them because I'm trying to engage in a transaction with God. Okay, God, I need your forgiveness, and so I'll forgive this other person. I don't do forgiveness because I'm in a transaction and I don't do forgiveness because they deserve it. I do forgiveness because of my heavenly Father, because of our heavenly Father, because the Father who is ready to forgive me is the same Father who is ready to forgive them. And if the Father who is ready to forgive them sees me not forgive them, what is he going to do? I've said this before. God is a giver who gives to givers. Because if you're a giver, you're not going to give to a taker. When you give to a taker, your giving ends. But when you give to a giver, your giving continues. God gives to givers. He forgives forgivers. Because He is ready to forgive that other person. He is ready to forgive you. Why would He ever forgive an unforgiving person? It doesn't make sense. Forgiveness is the kind of thing that is given. And God wants you to step into that. Jesus says, I forgive others because of our Father. Let's keep going because he turns back to fasting which is sort of the other side of prayer in a lot of cases. He says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others their fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This sounds exactly like the opening sections, right? The thing about giving same structure. The thing about praying, same structure. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Clearly, this whole section of giving, praying, and fasting are one package because they all have the same structure, right? And so the thing about prayer in the middle is inside this bigger picture of our relationship religiously to other people and our relationship religiously to God. Where should that relationship go? And so that prayer in the middle is really part of this whole big context of that. But what's interesting about fasting is that fasting is one of the key spiritual disciplines that connects you or rather disconnects you from the material world. Fasting is when I say I don't do that thing for a while because I want to focus on something more important. I'm not going to eat for a while because I want to focus on something more important. I'm not going to do this other behavior for a while because I'm going to focus on something more important. Fasting is when I restrict something from this life so that I can pay attention to something in heaven to come something spiritual. And so, in a sense, this fasting thing is a transitional statement. It's a bridge to all of the stuff that came earlier in Matthew chapter 6, and it's also a bridge to the thing that's going to come next, because the next thing Jesus talks about is material wealth. I'd love to spend more time on the fasting thing, but I need to jump into this last section. Because Jesus says these words. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. It's a very similar thing that Jesus is doing here to before, but it is a little bit different where before you were doing a spiritual thing to gain earthly rewards, and Jesus says, don't do that, you want heavenly rewards. Here, it's you are thinking about doing an earthly thing, storing up wealth, and you want to do this earthly thing for your earthly benefit, and Jesus says, no, it won't benefit you even earthly, and so you need to do something to benefit yourself spiritually. Now, I just have a question for you. He starts this section by saying, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. If I'm not storing the treasure, what am I doing with it? Let's just just think about this for a moment. If I'm not storing it, what am I doing with it? If it's sitting on my counter, I'm still kind of storing it. If I put it in a bank, I'm storing it. If I lock it in a box, I'm storing it. If I put it in a drawer, I'm storing it. If it's under my mattress, I'm storing it. What is the other option if I'm not going to store this treasure? I have to spend it or give it or in some other way use it. The only way to not store the treasure is to let go of the treasure. To get it away from me. Send it in another direction. And Jesus says, you can. You can send it ahead of you into heaven. Now, that means there's some way for me to use my wealth for the sake of heaven. And he says, yeah, because there's this principle that's so important. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I've said this before, but it's just important to to mention it again money leads the heart it doesn't go in the other way we think it'll go in the other way we think if my heart is right then I will use my money in line with my heart it doesn't work that way Because all of us know that money is so present, it's so now, it's so daily, that money is the thing I'm dealing with in reality, and heart is the thing that I can postpone. And so Jesus says, your treasure leads your heart. Where you send your treasure is where you send your heart. And if I lock my treasure in a box, I'm locking my heart in a box. But if I use my treasure for the kingdom, I'm sending my heart early into the kingdom. You could be in heaven right now while still having your feet on this planet. And Jesus says the way to make it happen is to get the money out of your hands. Now this would be the time in a church where I would say, you need to start giving your money to this church. You know, and I should make a big plug for that. But I'm not going to because I'm still trying to access our hearts. Jesus has something he wants to say here about this money and wealth thing that I think is incredibly important. Take a look at this. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, if you have read this passage before, you should have noticed a disconnect, right? There's a disconnect because he just said don't store up wealth on earth, and now he's talking about your eyes. The next passage after this, he'll get back to talking about wealth. He'll say, don't worry about your food, don't worry about your clothing, don't worry about what you will eat or what you will wear or any of the life things. And so he's talking about material wealth after this. But in the middle, he jumps to this weird thing about the eye being the lamp of your body. And in fact, if you keep reading, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So the whole surrounding section is talking about money What's the deal with the eye thing? Well, this is just one of those areas where you got to dig a little deeper. On the one hand, it sounds like it's just a cute little poetic aphorism, sort of like, uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac kind of thing, a stitch in time saves nine. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be bad, that kind of a thing. Except for the fact that Jesus uses a very important word the word he uses for healthy. In this translation is the word haplous and haplous is the Greek word that can mean singular focus and so we could make okay your eyes if your eyes are focused on just one thing then your body will be full of light but but that doesn't make sense in the context of money there is however another use of the word haplous haplous can also mean generous And there was a very common idiom among the Jewish people of the day that an evil eye was a selfish eye. There was a very common idiom in Jesus' day that when your eye is bad, that meant you were selfish. And so Jesus is using an idiom that already exists in their culture to make a metaphor about how a bad eye messes up everything. If your eye is selfish, your whole body will be full of darkness. But if your eye is generous, your whole body will be full of light. You know this to be true. Every one of us in this room has gone through a a time or a moment in our lives when we have been selfish, And you know in those moments when you're selfish, the way you view other people changes. What are they trying to get from me? What are they trying to get out of me? How are they trying to win this situation? How are they trying to make me lose this situation? When your eye is selfish, you see other people, and it fills your life with bitterness and darkness and frustration. But when your eye is generous... You're not looking for how they're trying to win you over or how they're trying to get something over on you. You're looking at how you can benefit them, how you can bless them. And all of a sudden, your life begins to be filled with light and optimism and hope. And you're like, I'm looking for a new way for me to bless that other person. Jesus is saying this. Generosity is what makes deposits in heaven. You can't serve two masters. If your heavenly father is your master, then the money has to get away from you. Now, that kind of bothers me. Um, Because I hear what Jesus is saying. He says I need to be generous with my wealth because of our father. But it bothers me because if if I keep putting other people first, where does that leave me? If I keep putting other people first, am I not eventually just going to be walked all over? If I keep getting rid of my wealth, am I not eventually just going to end up poor? The Old Testament book of Proverbs very clearly says we're supposed to save up during the days of plenty so that when the days are not so plenty, we won't be a burden on other people. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament will reaffirm that same thought, that we shouldn't be a burden on other people. I don't want to be a burden on other people, and I worry if I obey what Jesus is saying here, the way it sounds like he's saying it, then I'm going to run out. If I'm too generous, if I'm too kind, if I'm too free with my money, then I'm going to run out and there's not going to be enough left for me to take care of the things that I'm supposed to take care of. God, I'm worried about all these things that I need to take care of. And Jesus hears that worry. So he says the very next line, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or, look, stow away, store away in barns. The birds don't save anything for a rainy day, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And your heavenly Father knows already that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It sounds like he's giving you a diatribe against worry. I think what he's actually teaching you is that you shouldn't worry about your finances. You shouldn't worry about your wealth when you are committed to giving. When you are committed to taking care of other people, you shouldn't worry about that. Because it's all coming in that bigger context of my relationship with other people. And here is the biggest promise that Jesus gives in this whole passage. He says, I am secure. You are secure because of your heavenly Father. Your security doesn't come from your wealth. Your security doesn't come from your position. Your security doesn't come because you got all the spiritual things right. Your security comes because your Father already loves you. He's your Father. He's my Father. He's our Father. He loves us. And you know what that means? That means... That the Father who loves them enough to meet their needs through me is the same Father who promises to meet my needs. The Father who loves them enough to meet their needs through me is the Father who loves me enough to meet those needs for me. God is a caring need meeting God. This is not a promise for an easy life. This is a promise for life with this King, our God. I want to reaffirm that verse. We looked at it at the beginning. Look at it one more time. Jesus says, "...but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness." And all these things will be given to you as well. You might be at this point thinking through all the different things we've talked about, all the different segments and components of this chapter. And maybe you're thinking about the transactions. I forgive other people, God forgives me. I pray in secret, God rewards me. I give money in secret, God rewards me. I I do these other things in secret and God rewards me. Maybe you're thinking of the transactional nature of what we've talked about so far. But I gotta let you know, I am not interested in any of those rewards. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And guess what? If I am seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, I don't care about all the other rewards if I'm seeking first for rewards, then I you know, I would try to do whatever it takes to get the rewards. If I'm seeking first to get forgiveness, then I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get forgiveness. If I'm seeking first to make God like me, then I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get God to like me. If I'm seeking first to get other people to like me, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get other people to like me. But if I'm seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, then I'm going to be rewarded with all these other things but I don't even care about Him because what I want is His kingdom. What I want is His righteousness because when I'm in His kingdom, all of the people around me are caring for me even as I'm caring for them. When I'm in His kingdom, I'm not above anyone else but no one else is above me. When I'm in His kingdom, then God is taking care of me directly because I'm in His kingdom. And if I can have His righteousness on me, I don't have to worry about Satan's temptation. If I can have his righteousness on me, I don't have to worry about those times when I was motivated improperly because his righteousness is going to fill me up. If I'm seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, all the other things fall into place. And I don't even really care so much about those rewards. The new religion of Jesus is to put others before you because of our Father. Because of him, his kingdom, and his righteousness. Not the stuff he gives. Not the rewards he offers. Not even the the thing I'm expecting out of heaven. But the fact that he's the king. The fact that he already is my father. The fact that he he loves me and cares for me. And the fact that he has brought me into a family that he loves and cares for too. The father who cares for others through me will also care for me. I hope this week, and I hope for the rest of our lives, we can be people who obey the religion of Jesus, which is to have our motivations straight and to go ahead and let other people come first. Because God is the one who, if He can meet their needs through me, He can certainly meet my needs let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So, if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.